Welcome back to Mind Your Body. Thanks as always for coming back and listening. Just some updates before we begin. I started a Mind Your Body blog that you can now find on www.mindyourbodydmt.com. You can find it under the blog category, and I'll be writing about common themes from a mind-body-connected perspective and eventually invite some guest bloggers here and there. Also, you may have noticed that I changed my last name, and if you're confused about it, this was an intentional change and also a very happy change as I changed my last name after getting married in June. So I will now be going by Orit Krug. Woohoo! So today's episode is my first ever solo podcast that takes a deeper look into suicide through a mind-body connection lens. I've been deeply curious about suicide for a long time, and I've recently been inspired to examine it more scientifically. You'll probably notice that this episode is pretty information-dense, so if you'd like the written transcript, please go to my website, www.mindyourbodydmt.com, and sign up for Mind Your Body's newsletter. I'll send it as a special blog post for anyone who signs up. Don't worry, I won't be sending much mail at all, but you can get this episode in written transcripts. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. There's been a lot of buzz around Netflix's recent series called 13 Reasons Why. If you don't already know about it, 13 Reasons Why is a TV show following the suicide of a young high school student named Hannah Baker. The story begins two weeks after her suicide, when one of Hannah's peers finds a package of double-sided audio tapes, each side detailing the reasons she chose to end her life. The package comes with very clear instructions. Pass it on to the next person identified on the tape so that they can hear why they are part of the 13 reasons she committed suicide. If her peers don't follow instructions, a separate package of tapes will be revealed to the public. 13 Reasons Why has been bringing up a lot of questions and controversy about different aspects of the show. Are they romanticizing suicide? Are they making suicide seem too cut and dry, not acknowledging the depth of the mental illness that coincides? Most of all, what will spark from so much exposure of graphic details about suicide? Just last week, new research showed that since the show's premiere, the phrase how to commit suicide was searched online 26% more than what the researchers said was typical for the time period. Searches for suicide prevention increased 23% and suicide hotline number increased 21%. I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't watched any of the series and I'm not sure that I can or will because I work primarily with suicidal patients and it would not suit my self-care needs at the moment to watch this show. I'm a therapist working in an inpatient psychiatric hospital. This is the highest level of acute psychiatric care, with many people coming in after suicide attempts, without an attempt but with a clear plan, or having unspecified impulses, desires, or thoughts about ending their lives. Through assessment and treatment, I symbolically and literally hold the weight of their emotions and stories that led them to this place. I've heard that the show is tragically graphic and heavy, so at this point I've made a conscious choice to take care of myself through hobbies that help me feel lighter instead of heavier by the end of the day. So obviously I'm not here to talk about 13 Reasons Why, but I am here to give my perspective, from a dance movement therapy lens, from a mind-body connected lens, about suicide and what it really means when you're working with people who are 
actively thinking about ending their lives or truly want to. This is a tough population to work with, but I do get some security that when I'm doing my work with them, they're inside a safe place, and if my co-staff and I file a protocol, they will not commit suicide under our care, and it is my deepest hope that they won't want to pass hospital discharge. But what happens in those moments when our patients, our loved ones, or even we are having suicidal thoughts? What happens when we know someone who actually wholeheartedly wants to end his or her life? How can we try to convince someone to want to live when that's truly deeply something they don't want? We have patients who didn't even make the choice to come to the hospital, but were forced to because someone else decided that their desire to die is not an option. What would inspire them to want to live? What inspires any of us to live? What inspires us to get out of bed every day? What is our meaning and purpose in staying alive? Life can feel very meaningful and purposeful, but it can also feel hopeless or somewhere in between. We can feel suicidal but still have a slither of hope that things will look up. We can think that we might be better off dead but don't have a plan to act on it. Or we can make suicidal statements to cry out for help because we don't know how else to get it. If we haven't all experienced these feelings to an extent at one point or another in our lives, then I think we at least know someone else who has. There's a whole spectrum to being suicidal, from suicidal ideation, including thoughts and plans about suicide, to suicide attempts. And I'm not sure how much the general public understands the spectrum. So let's talk first about why someone would actually want to end his or her own life when it is our biological imperative to survive. Our bodies have evolved to survive. Our autonomic nervous system has developed on this very goal. We have our sympathetic nervous system that alarms us through potentially dangerous situations and kicks us into fight-or-flight mode. And we have our parasympathetic nervous system that permits us to rest and relax when we do not feel a physical or emotional threat. Our brains and bodies can even shut down when they sense that even the fight-or-flight response isn't enough to protect us. This is our freeze function that is the most primitive branch of the human nervous system and is genetically tied to reptilian behavior. We see similar behaviors in certain animals who play dead when confronted by a predator in order to save their own lives. We have evolved to protect ourselves from death. So if our bodies are so inclined to live, why would any human being wish to die? So the first questions that come to mind are, how does depression and other mental illnesses that correlate with suicidal intentions and attempts physically affect the body? Does it change its natural functions? What happens when someone doesn't feel positive emotions for so long? For the sake of time, I'm going to focus primarily on depression with the understanding that depression often co-occurs with anxiety disorders and other mental illnesses. It's commonly known that stress plays a major role in causing depression. And since depression is the most common risk factor of suicide, then the body definitely has a lot to do with affecting someone's will to live. Here's why. Patients with depression often present with neurovegetative symptoms, like changes in appetite, changes in sleep, loss of interest in pleasurable activities. This results from a decrease in serotonin and norepinephrine, which clearly affects a person on a whole body scale. Several studies also suggest that chronic depression is linked with a shrunken hippocampus. That's the part of the brain associated with memory and emotional regulation. 
when the hippocampus cannot identify the time and space of a memory associated with its specific emotions, this can cause somebody to feel negative emotions from the past in the present moment, in a constant state of fear, and into a vicious cycle of stress and depression. It's important to note that scientists are unsure whether a smaller hippocampus correlates with depression or is a cause of depressive symptoms. Another reason the body has much to do with affecting someone's will to live is, in the last 20 years, there has been an increasing number of studies that highlight the connection between the brain and the gut. Our enteric nervous system, consisting of the gastrointestinal tract, or better known as the gut, is also known as our second brain, a term coined by Michael Gershon, chairman of anatomy and cell biology at Columbia University and the author of the book Second, Second Brain. The gut contains about 100 million sensing-feeling neurons that communicate regularly with the brain through the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system to signal danger or safety in one's perceived environment. This shows us that there's a link between gut health and thoughts and emotions. Having a gut feeling or a gut instinct is not just an expression. It's real. Your gut and brain are actually sensing that something might be unsafe about a certain situation. A chronically stressed body constantly releases cortisol and danger signals, which also signal needing support from its immune system for protection. The gut, which helps us regulate our immune system response, protects the body when it's in a constant state of stress by producing inflammation. Even though inflammation serves a protective purpose, too much of it actually further stresses the body, setting it into constant high alert and producing more anxiety-related chemicals versus pleasure-related chemicals. Inflammation is widespread throughout the body, and once inflammation starts, it's hard to stop because inflammation caused by chronic stress leads to more stress, which leads to more immune production, which leads to more inflammation, and so on with the vicious cycle. Dr. Kelly Brogan, a New York City holistic psychiatrist who makes great efforts to advocate the significance of the gut-brain relationship and depression, she calls inflammation highly self-perpetuating, and other scientists refer to this phenomenon as the inflammatory cascade. In the case of chronically depressed individuals, the neurobiology of their gut has been compromised by its immune system working in overdrive using the majority of its resources to protect itself from chronic stress. Our autonomic nervous system is meant to sense both danger and rest, so feeling chronically in fight-or-flight mode with the absence of rest is functioning out of its natural state, affecting our neurobiology that has evolved to function with a natural will to live. On a simpler note, feeling fear and danger all the time without alleviation would probably make anyone desperate to find a way out. Just thinking about those mechanisms is exhausting. Imagine feeling it. From my experiences with my patients who are just coming into the hospital, they tend to express these feelings in a few ways. One, they feel numb from feelings, so they report having no feelings, including no will or motivation to live. At this point, to cope with the stress and other negative emotions, they've learned to cope by numbing them all together and no longer feel the drive to stay alive. Number two, they feel a sense of worthlessness and meaninglessness. They express that nobody cares about them and that they have no purpose in life. If they aren't forming any new memories or taking in new information, they are stuck in negative patterns and the isolation is not helping with finding new meaningful connections in life. 
I get the sense that these individuals are extremely frustrated with life, the world, and people around them. Number three, they have no other way of resolving their issues besides ending their lives. The vicious cycle of stress and depression that I referred to earlier can certainly make anyone feel like it's impossible to escape. I feel that when I engage in verbal assessment with these patients, they perk up a little bit and benefit from the social engagement and support from me. But I also feel that it can be very short-lived, and I often find that once I'm walking away, their affect quickly becomes flat again, and they seem to retreat once again in their seats. Like any other therapist, I crave the satisfaction that I'm making a difference in people's lives, so I tend to be disappointed when it doesn't feel that way. Just to be clear, though, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that I make a difference in all of my patients' lives. But that's taken me a long time to accept, and I still have days when that is harder to accept, but I do my best to focus on the differences that I do make, which helps me cope with the fact that I can't help everyone. When I do feel like I have a strong effect on patients who are having suicidal thoughts or intentions, it's usually when I'm incorporating movement and promoting vitality in their bodies. Obviously, I'm a dance movement therapist, and I will always find a way to incorporate more than just the mind or talking into treatment, even if it just means that I was able to get a group to all tap their feet together and nothing more. That can be a powerful experience right there, not only moving, but moving in synchrony with others. I actually had a patient tell me recently in the beginning of one of my sessions when I asked, what is it that you want to gain from this group in just the next hour? She said, I just want to feel the tiniest sense that I matter in this world. It was so honest and vulnerable, but she was clearly expressing that she felt not even a bit of worth in the world. In this particular group, we worked up to moving together in synchrony through a group mirroring directive that asks one person at a time to be leading a simple movement that everyone else will follow, so that in essence, the entire group is moving together in the same way at the same time. I preface this intervention directive with, don't worry about doing things right or wrong. The purpose is not to focus on moving in any certain way, but let's make our purpose to be in rhythmic sync with each other. And I continuously reminded them throughout the group, look around the room, look at the person's feet as you move your feet. Are you in sync? Are you connected? If not, I ask, how can we sync back up? Keeping eye contact, staying present with the others in the room, hearing my clapping to the beat and moving to that. By the end of the group, this particular patient said she felt a sense of worth because she was joined by others and was able to join others in collective expression. There was a camaraderie and solidarity in the room. It's common for me to hear, I actually feel a part of something. I feel like I matter. Everyone was doing it, so I felt comfortable. I didn't feel judged. I felt accepted. I felt free. Marion Chase, founder of Dance Movement Therapy, coined the term rhythmic group action, which describes how rhythm is an organizing tool that creates a harmonious environment in a group of people. Organized rhythm is a steady, reliable, predictable, tangible guide that can help people who are feeling suicidal feel safe and secure enough to connect with others. Rhythm can help balance communication and expression, bringing up the lows and regulating the highs. Think about it. We function on rhythm. Our heart beats with rhythm. We breathe in rhythm. We walk with rhythm. We even have our own patterns of talking with certain rhythms. It makes sense that a core principle of dance movement therapy includes the use of rhythm because we can very naturally connect with it. 
And it can be the bridge from isolation to connection in suicidal patients if they engage in dance movement therapy. I just visited New York City, so this idea is on the top of my head. And by the way, I know firsthand that it's pretty easy to feel isolated in a city of 8.5 million people if you can't find ways to connect. So I'm, I'm imagining a situation where you're walking by yourself on the sidewalk, in your own rhythm, and kind of just in your thoughts alone. And then I'm imagining a situation when you're walking on the sidewalk in a certain rhythm, and someone happens to be walking beside you in the same exact rhythm. What would happen? For me, I think this would be highly noticeable and make me curious. It would make me want to look at this person and maybe even laugh because in those moments, we are walking at the same exact speed to the same exact rhythm. We don't know each other, but we have a connection, even just for a moment. I find that to be a much more likely situation than, let's say, two people sitting across from each other on a relatively quiet train, spontaneously making a connection. But, you know, maybe when a performer brings on some music and we all start clapping to the beat to cheer them on, we may share a glance, a smile, a look, like, hey, we got something in common right now. Human beings have a biological desire to be in synchrony and naturally fall into what's called entrainment. Our biological cycles and rhythms organically become synchronous in response to external rhythms. Here's a quote by dance movement therapist Laura Wilson Mao. Rhythm unites. By facilitating shared rhythmic body action, dance movement therapists foster connection, an immediate embodied connection that can break through even the profoundest isolation. What I'm trying to say is that rhythm, when monitored and implemented in the right way, is a powerful foundation and motivator in dance movement therapy for people feeling suicidal. Once they have a base for expression, they can trust the people and environment around them enough to explore outside their comfort zone. Expanding expression beyond their comfort zones can help them experience new connections within themselves by experiencing new sensations or sensations they haven't felt in a long time, which can lead to feeling emotions that have been numbed, repressed, and projected onto the idea of suicide as the only means for ending these feelings. They are experiencing new or new again connections with other people, even in just the early sessions of dance movement therapy, or in my case, in acute inpatient care within just one session. I'm not here to make any assumptions on the research I talked about in the beginning of the episode, but wouldn't these new experiences and connections support myelination of new neural pathways as these individuals form new memories and pleasurable experiences? Wouldn't these experiences give them a sense of freedom from the negative loop of stress and depression? Is that what's behind the common feedback of feeling free and feeling like myself again, even within just one session? Is it breaking free from neurovegetative symptoms by feeling a drive and motivation again to explore something new? Granted, many individuals are involved with multiple types of treatments simultaneously, so there's likely a buildup to these breakthrough feelings or a combination of them all. But in my own biased opinion, incorporating the body into treatment can help make things click to feel a well-rounded integrative shift from seeking suicide to feeling worth something. Here's another quote by another dance movement therapist, Bonnie Bernstein. Encouraging expressive freedom, creative dance exploration, and psychophysical improvisation opens new pathways that uncover, release, and transform. The dance brings healing, empowerment, and life change. I feel like it might be hard for others to believe that even one session can help suicidal individuals on the path to wanting to live again. 
I don't think one session is enough to make that feeling last, but I do believe that the integrative experience of dance movement therapy can spark even a tiny ounce of hope and meaning in one's life, just like that patient I referred to before. Maybe it would help if I describe a typical session in which I see these shifts. At first, I'm usually met with resistance that resembles the stuckness they have been feeling for so long, but with a very gradual warm-up, I can help people safely begin feeling sensation and connect that to associated emotions. Sometimes it's uncomfortable and people say, wow, I didn't realize how much tension I'm holding in my shoulders. Sometimes people say, this feels so good just to stretch and get out of my head. And sometimes a mix of both. Either way, it is clear that sensation and emotion are becoming more noticeable during the warm-up portion of session. My goal is to create a safe and trusting environment from the moment my patients walk into group by providing an informative introduction to dance movement therapy. I do this by being transparent about the inevitable discomfort they will feel from engaging in a new form of expression. I advise that they'll be asked to socially interact in a different way than they're used to, since talking is their primary and preferred form of expression. And I validate the possibility that this may be the first time in a long time that they're interacting at all, because they've been isolated for so long. I encourage them to push through the discomfort, but also letting them know that they have the option to take a break if they feel that things are unbearably overwhelming. These things are so important to say, and I believe it really sets up the space to make them feel safe enough to tolerate a range of sensations, thoughts, and emotions coming up through the session. There's a certain level of anxiety and fear that comes up with feeling these emotions, the same fear that our gut can feel and signal to our brain that something dangerous is upon us. This is because they've developed defense mechanisms and escape routes specifically to avoid these emotions. What I help my patients do is regulate their level of anxiety through their experiences by constantly assessing and monitoring their level of anxiety. This is a skill I've developed with years of experience and a skill that I know some of my previous podcast interviewees mentioned. By monitoring my own level and cues of anxiety, I get certain somatic cues and an intuition that can help me sense that things may be getting out of control because it would be too much for them to tolerate any longer. So, if they are engaging their mind and body in therapy in a slightly anxiety-provoking way by experiencing gradual and carefully monitored stress and discomfort, then I'm helping their bodies experience a healthy, regulated increase in cortisol. At the same time, I'm helping them recover and return to homeostasis over and over again as they engage in movement and then rest, and movement and rest again. Meaning, engaging in movement activates a sympathetic response, that's the fight-or-flight response, and returning to rest activities calm feelings through function of the parasympathetic nervous system. It seems to make sense that exercising the fight-or-flight response in this healthy way would help an individual calibrate their autonomic nervous systems to send more accurate danger signals between brain and gut and strengthening the resiliency of the system with more accurate communication. Let's break that down for a minute. Let's compare this to exercising your muscles with weightlifting. The more weight you use to exercise a muscle, the stronger it becomes. Your stronger muscles eventually don't fatigue as easily And what was once very challenging is now easy enough that you have to increase the weight you lift in order for it to be a real challenge. Dr. Stephen Porges, originator of the polyvagal theory, identified the nervous system's automatic response of perceived threat as neuroception. 
Healthy doses of stress coupled with relaxation strengthens our neuroception. What used to be very challenging and stressful is now sensed differently by the body. Continuous exercise and rest of the, let's say, fear muscle will create a higher tolerance and more accurate assessment of what's dangerous versus what's not. More resiliency and higher tolerance could regulate immune responses and reduce chronic inflammation and potentially help one's body connect with its original will to survive. I imagine that this process can happen in talk therapy for certain people. I mean, I've had my own cathartic experiences through talking, but I feel that it could be too limited to not incorporate the body when people are at such a severe time in their lives, when they're feeling suicidal. I feel strongly that we need to engage the physical body in order to make a change from such an acute state of despair that clearly has such physical origins and effects. Movement is life. We breathe to live. Our hearts use movement to pump oxygenated blood throughout our body. In fact, we are never not moving. Movement is life, and incorporating movement into treatment can spark a feeling of aliveness. We as a species are so familiar with talking and so accustomed to it. I hear a lot of stories in the hospital that sound rote, like they've told it a million times. Some just telling it for the first time, though, which I do believe can be a huge step towards a breakthrough. It feels like, especially when we tell the same story a million times over, we're not even gauging our mind anymore. It's like a passive routine that we're stuck in, along with the very difficult emotions we can't free ourselves from. Why wouldn't someone engage in the physical body to make a therapeutic change? It allegedly can literally make changes to your brain and improve healthy communication between brain and body. So let me ask you, what do you do when you're feeling stuck or numb or frustrated and sad, but having difficulty finding a solution? If you're not sure or haven't quite figured it out yet, try something that engages your body and consequently your mind and spirit. Personally, I feel most alive when I'm engaging in adventure sports and high-intensity workouts that engage my flight-or-fight system. It helps me feel a sense of anxiety, but also a sense of accomplishment and rest once I complete any sort of obstacle related to these activities. Further than that, I feel most free when I blast music in my home and improv dance and vocalize sounds exactly how I want. In these moments, I feel like myself. It's even better when I can find others to do all these things with to add social connectedness and a sense of acceptance and belonging. Most of all, I've realized that it really benefits me to have a variety of challenges in my life, even within those few activities, in order to surprise my body and autonomic nervous system with a healthy amount of new stressors and fears that I can recover from. All the while, it's important to recognize when it's too much and time to take a break and just slow down. What is it that you feel motivated to do? What is the first step that you can take to get yourself out of a slump? There's value in changing things up, value in expanding your expressive and exploratory tendencies. Think about a romantic relationship that's going through a rut, almost like a depression, loss of pleasure, little motivation to do things together. Could they talk to find a spark again? Maybe, but what if they just started by taking a walk together in a new city? Take a cooking class together, making a new recipe, trying anything new that will engage both their minds and their bodies. Isn't that the kind of advice we would see on a dating blog? Social and physical engagement can keep our relationship feeling alive, just like it can motivate any one of us to feel alive. 
let's start incorporating the mind and the body into living life. And let's be an example for everyone else to do the same. I want to clarify that I didn't share many other aspects of dance movement therapy and related practices that can benefit people in many other ways. For the sole purpose of this episode, I attempted to investigate the nature of suicidal ideation through the mind-body connection and an alternative mind-body connected lens. Feel free to share a comment that might be helpful for others to gain a deeper understanding of suicidal ideation, and please share what it is that you personally do that motivates you to really experience being alive. Hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks, everyone.